Well, for our equipping hour, what we're going to do this morning is really take a, a biographical sketch of Jonathan Edwards. And over the coming weeks and months, we'll interject some uh, kind of talks, lectures on various heroes of the faith, different people who have had a particular um, significant influence and bearing on history and look at them together. This morning, we're going to look at the life of Jonathan Edwards, the life of Jonathan Edwards. One of the means of grace that God has provided for the believer is godly examples. What do I mean by that? One of the means of grace, one of the the evidences of God's kindness and care for us as followers of Jesus is examples of men and women who have lived faithfully before him. Men and women who are godly examples of faithfulness. God, in his kindness to us, has preserved stories of faithful men and women who have gone before us and have pursued the glory of God faithfully. Many of us have heroes of the faith. It is a good thing to have heroes of the faith in as much as these heroes point you to Christ. There is great encouragement for the person who sees another live faithfully for God in this life. Because you see, there is, there is something that every person has in common. And that is that we are born into this world as sinners. We are separated from God. We are by nature enemies of God. There is not one person in this world who has ever not sinned against God. We all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We all hold this in common. Each of us are in desperate need of a Savior, and each of us is in desperate need for the grace of God. And so these faithful men and women who have gone before us were not so. They weren't faithful because they conjured it up in their own strength. These men and women who were faithful before God were what they were by the grace of God. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you can have hope and you can have encouragement that the same grace and the same mercy that God showed them is the same grace that he has shown you and the same spirit who indwelled them is the same spirit that indwells us as followers of Jesus Christ. And so we can have hope and we can look to those who have walked before us and find comfort and encouragement that we too can live faithfully before God. And what a gift from the Lord that is. Even just considering Hebrews 11, right? The, The hall of fame of believers in scripture who have lived faithful under hardship and tribulation and persecution and even death. Paul didn't shy away from telling the Corinthians to follow his example in his pursuit of Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. And that's ultimately what we want to do as we look at various heroes of the faith. What we want to follow them toward is their following of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a man. He was a mighty man. He was a faithful man. He was an extraordinary man who God used in many ways. But at the end of the day, he was a man. And what his life most represented was not the accolades of a man, but his life pointed to diligently, faithfully, the greatness of God. So this morning, as we look at the life of Jonathan Edwards, we want to look at the man, Jonathan Edwards, but we want to see beyond the man, right? That's our goal. 
that we might see the God this man pursued. Jonathan Edwards is a man worthy of imitation, not because everything in his life was perfect or because he was sinless, but he was a man who pursued the Lord diligently. Edwards is considered the towering figure in American colonial history, church history, and arguably the greatest pastor, preacher, philosopher, theologian, and author that America has ever produced. And yet while he was those things, it seems that his life was not aimed at being a renowned preacher or being a renowned theologian. It seems Edwards lived with an enlarged passion and resolve to experience personal godliness. And in this pursuit, he became a model of discipline worthy of our emulation. Edwards had a profound impact on his day, and yet his lasting influence can be measured in other ways as well. At the beginning of the 20th century, a study traced Edwards' descendants. And results were staggering. From Edwards came a large and distinguished progeny, 300 clergymen, missionaries, and theological professors. His descendants include 120 college professors, 110 lawyers, more than 60 physicians, more than 60 authors of good books, 30 judges, 14 presidents of universities, numerous giants in American industry, 80 holders of major public office, three mayors of large cities, three governors of states, three U.S. senators, one chaplain of the U.S. Senate, one controller of the U.S. Treasury, and one vice president of the United States, that is Aaron Burr served with Thomas Jefferson. It's hard to imagine that anyone else has contributed more vitally to the soul of this nation than this New England man. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is not known to exaggerate, said, I am tempted, perhaps foolish, to compare the Puritans to the Alps, Luther and Calvin to the Himalayas, and Jonathan Edwards to Mount Everest. What a statement. He goes on to say, he has always seemed to me the man most like the Apostle Paul. Jonathan Edwards towers over church history. He's recognized as the theologi- uh, theologian of the first great awakening. And what we must ask ourselves this morning is, what made Edwards so great? What made him this way? We know it was the grace of God ultimately that made him great. Yet how was that grace manifested? If, if we want to follow his example, if we want to be conformed more to the image of Christ as we follow him as he followed Christ, how is this manifested? Well, one very significant way is that Edwards uniquely combined spiritual godliness with intellectual genius. Sadly, for many of us, increased intellect becomes a hindrance to holiness and a growth bed for pride. It seems that this was not the case for Edwards, who was an intellectual genius. And yet both his mind and his heart were engaged in the pursuit of God, his piety or holiness, the equal of his intellect. Though Edwards was intellectually brilliant and theologically commanding, his true greatness lay in his unquenchable zeal, not for his own fame, but for the glory of God. What made Jonathan Edwards so special? 
Why was he at the heart of the Great Awakening? Why did God use him so mightily? Edwards had a unique combination of giftedness and godliness. He possessed a towering intellect, an extraordinary mind. And this coupled with his godliness, his piety, his supreme love for his Savior set him apart. God molded his talents and giftedness together into one person to be used for the glory of God. And there's a lesson right here for all of us. Whatever God has given to you, whatever talents, whatever giftedness that God has given to you, let it all not be for our own advancement, but for the pursuit of the glory of God in all things. Whatever giftedness God has given, whatever talents he has, has bestowed upon us, whatever privilege or, or things that we have in this world, let all of it be used to advance the glory of God as we seek to live fully submitted to him in holiness. Edwards desired to honor God above all else. His eye was singular, his soul was steadfast, his will was strong. He was born in 1703. He died at the age of 55 in 1758. Just to put this in a little bit of context historically, right? 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. 1620, the Mayflower landed in Plymouth. July 4th, 1776, so shortly after his death, the United States became a nation. Jonathan Edwards fits within 1703 to 1758 in church history. Now, before we dive further into the specifics of his life, I just want to say this is a towering figure of church history. And now after that introduction, we have about 40 minutes. And so I just want to say up front for my own conscience sake, I'm going to miss things that you love about Jonathan Edwards. This morning, I, I could spend all the time speaking as quickly as I could, and I would miss precious things, great stories. What I've tried to do is summarize really a, an outline of his life. What were some of the key events of his life? What were some of his key responses to these events? And then how might we learn and grow as a result of these things? And, and so if I don't settle in on something that you were hoping to hear, please forgive me. Uh, at the end, I'm going to share some resources if you want to learn more about Jonathan Edwards, but that's kind of where we're going this morning. So how about I pray, and then we'll jump in uh, further to the life of Jonathan Edwards. God, thank you so much for this morning. What a gift it is to be joined together as the people of God, worshiping you in so many different ways, hearing from your word. And Lord, now as we just continue this time, I pray that we would continue our worship of you, even in a, a talk about a man. Lord, what we want to do is we want to please you in this time. We want to have our faith in you deepened and grown. We want to have our zeal for you enlarged. And we want to be conformed more to the image of your son. So we pray that these next 40 minutes that we have together would accomplish that end, that you would be glorified and that we would be made more holy as a result of this time. Help us to see what we must about you as we gaze at the life of this man. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Jonathan Edwards' early childhood. What was that like? Well, Jonathan was born October 5th, 1703 to Reverend Timothy Edwards and Esther Stoddard Edwards. Edwards was born in East Windsor, Connecticut, and was the only son among 10 daughters. Edwards came from a very respected family. 
His father was a Harvard-trained pastor who faithfully preached at the same church in East Windsor for more than 60 years. His mother came from one of the most prominent families in Connecticut. She was the daughter of Solomon Stoddard. Solomon was a renowned uh, was renowned as a pastor and pastored one church for almost 60 years as well. Can you imagine that? 60 years pastoring the same church. What a legacy of faithfulness. Solomon was so known as a man of God that he was known as the Northampton Pope. Now, I don't know how I would feel about being referred to as the Tempe Pope. I don't think we'll ever get to that. I hope we never get to that, but I imagine for him it was a compliment. Edwards had four older sisters and six that followed after him. And what we can learn just from observing that is he was a resilient man being raised in a household with 10 sisters, resolved to make it as a young man in that environment. Remarkable brilliance marked Jonathan as a young man. His father taught him the scriptures at an early age. And we have to just stop there for a moment and and make an observation about this. It is likely that none of us will ever come close to being the kind of man that Jonathan Edwards was. Right? Romans 12.3 is a, a good reminder. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. But... But to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted each to us a measure of faith, I think it would be sound judgment to not think that any one of us will ever become the next Jonathan Edwards. Yet God allotted to Edwards an extraordinary amount of faith. One of his greatest evidences of grace to Edwards was faithful parents who imparted biblical truth upon their children and modeled it before their children faithfully. That's just a lesson for us. Jonathan Edwards was shown the kindness of God, which contributed to his work for the Lord through the means of of godly, faithful parents. Parents, don't squander the opportunity that you have to pour yourself out in love and faithfulness as you bring the gospel to your children. What might God be pleased to do in our children through faithful parents? Don't squander the opportunity to pour into your children. Don't neglect the immense privilege of teaching your children the folly of foolishness and the wisdom of fearing God Above all else, live your faith in front of your children. Seek holiness alongside of your children. There are so many opportunities, even just this last week with Kobe Bryant's death has spurred on some incredible conversations. I know in households about how money, wealth, fame cannot prolong your life one day. Don't miss opportunities that are right before you to train up your children in the Lord, to pour yourself out for them in love. Edward's father spoke of the Lord and modeled godly Christian life and character, as well as the responsibilities and rewards of pastoral ministry. Edward saw very intimately the joys and trials of pastoral ministry, and he observed the strains of personal pursuit of Christ. While Jonathan was trained, he was shown the Christian life and very highly educated. It it was not during these formative years when he was converted. It was not in his early years that he professed faith in Christ. It came a little bit later. However, at age 13, his father 
Timothy enrolled Edwards at the newly founded Collegiate School of Connecticut. This school was later to be known as Yale College. Timothy Edwards, Jonathan's father, had been educated at Harvard, which had been established as a Calvinistic school but had weakened under Arminian influences. And this doctrinal erosion prompted Timothy to enroll Jonathan at Yale, which was unashamedly true to Reformed theology. It was here Edwards received a broad liberal arts education. He graduated at the head of his class with a Bachelor's of Arts degree in 1720 and delivered the valedictory address. He he jumped right into the master's program at Yale, which required two years of independent study. During this time, age 17, he was suddenly converted to Jesus Christ. His conversion seems to have taken place as he was contemplating 1 Timothy 1.17, which says, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the, uh, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In response to this passage, Edwards wrote, and I think, I think this is where we start having it. Oh, there we go. I think we start having some of these um, on the screen. If you want these quotes, you can email me, josh at gbcaz.org, and I'd be happy to pass on my PowerPoint to you, and you can get all the quotes. So you don't have to feel like you have to jot these down. You can just listen, and I'd be happy to pass these on. So in response to this passage, Edwards wrote this. There came into my soul, and it was as it were diffused through it, a sense of the glory of the divine being. A new sense, quite different from anything I had ever experienced before. His heart immediately was overjoyed with rapturous thoughts of God. And Edwards would later write, I began to have a new kind of apprehensions and ideas of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious ways of salvation by him. An inward sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart. My soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them, and my mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Christ, on the beauty and excellency of his person, and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him. I know sanctification is a process for us, but it seems like he started ahead of the curve. To have those kinds of thoughts about God and be able to articulate those things in that way is truly remarkable. Where was I? Did Edwards also said regarding his conversion? Yep. I was indeed brought to seek salvation in a manner that I never was before. I felt a spirit to part with all things in the world for an interest in Christ. My concern continued and prevailed with many exercising thoughts and inward struggles. We just sang this kind of reality this morning, take the world and give me Jesus, right? We sang that and it's easy to get engaged in those kinds of songs and want to mean it and not mean it perfectly and need God to do a work in our heart to help get us there. Most of us probably didn't show up this morning with a complete disposition of wanting to forsake all things in the world for Christ. We we probably would say we want that, but maybe live that imperfectly. Jonathan, at a very early point in his salvation, that was in his mind that he would have in his spirit to part with all things in the world for an interest in Christ. 
That was his childhood, and then trans- transitioning into his young adulthood. Uh, upon completing his classwork for the master's program, but before writing his thesis, Edwards traveled to New York City. There he was serving as the interim pastor of a small Scottish Presbyterian church near Broadway and Wall Street. During this formative time, he, as he describes it, felt a burning desire to be in everything a complete Christian. Wow. I think of Colossians uh, 1, where Paul talks about how he labors so that every believer could be found complete in Christ. And it seems that this was a desire for Jonathan himself, that in everything he had a burning desire to be a complete Christian, a mature Christian in the Lord. That is, he wanted to be fully devoted to God. Edwards was not interested in talking about theology if his personal holiness did not fall in line. Oh, and if it would be so good if each of us had that same desire. It's far too often easy to get excited about rich theological truths because we enjoy the mental exercise of things well put, things well said. And yet we neglect the very trivial, basic ways that those precious truths should bear on our lives. There's a good lesson here for many who delight to dabble in theological discussions, who get really excited about deep theological statements, but give little attention to the pursuit of holiness in the most basic Christian disciplines. Edwards did not simply want to appear on the outside a moral person, but he wanted personal holiness of the whole of him. He wanted to be holy. He wanted to enjoy Christ. He wanted to be enthralled with God himself, and nothing less than this would do. This proved to be a soul-stretching time in which Edwards gave careful thought to the priorities that he desired to be the guiding principles of his life. It was then that Edwards, 18 years old, began writing his resolutions. He eventually composed 70 purpose statements each designed to direct his newly begun Christian journey. They were the guidelines, the systems of checks and balances that he would use to chart out his life, his relationships, his conversations, his desires, his activities. All of these things would be run through the check of his resolutions. Edwards also began keeping a diary to monitor his spiritual pulse. He was all in. He was committed. He was resolved. He had a new master interest which possessed him. It was to enjoy the word of God, to enjoy the God of the word. He wrote, I had then and at other times the greatest delight in the Holy Scriptures of any book whatsoever. Oftentimes in reading it, every word seemed to touch my heart. I felt a harmony between something in my heart and those sweet and powerful words. I seemed often to see so much light exhibited by every sentence and such a refreshing food communicated that I could not get along in reading, often dwelling long on one sentence to see the wonders contained in it. 
And yet almost every sentence seemed to be full of wonders. This is his view towards God's word. He no longer resolved as he once did, dependent upon his own efforts. His endeavors after holiness are no more more than self-conscious strivings of of a moralist. Rather, they are a response, the response of love to the God who had made him a new creature in Christ Jesus. See, he could polish himself up prior to salvation very well. He could speak with much intellect and understanding in a compelling manner, but now his goal was no longer for self-advancement, but to advance the name of Christ. Sanctification he saw now as a personal experience, experience flowing from communion with God and fellowship with Christ. In his diary, he wrote this, I think I find in my heart to be glad from the hopes I have that my eternity is to be spent in supernatural and holy joys arising from the manifestation of God's love and the exercise of holiness and burning love to him. When Edwards' interim pastorate concluded in April of 1723, Edwards returned home to Connecticut to write his master's thesis and to fill in preaching at Northampton. He graduated from Yale in October of 1723 with a Master of Arts degree after orally presenting and defending his thesis on the doctrine of imputation. The title of his thesis was, get this, a sinner is not justified in the sight of God except through the righteousness of Christ obtained by faith. That was his thesis statement. That would be the whole essay if I was assigned a task. Um, You can ask Smed about many of my assignments. They were probably more simple than that. Uh, And this was one of his shorter titles. (laughs) This guy just could, could get his mind around great truths and communicate them in wonderful ways. Edwards then served a short interim pastorate at the Congregational Church in Bolton, Connecticut from November 1723 to May 1724 before returning to Yale to assume an instructor's position. He did this from 1724 to 1726. It was then that he met and began courting young Sarah Pierpoint, Pierpont, the daughter of James Pierpont Sr., the pastor of New Haven. Sarah was converted at a young age. She was a godly young woman and known for her faithfulness. This was characteristic of her whole life. While she, like everyone else, had struggles and had times where her heart felt cold, she was an extraordinary woman woman, and a great help to her future husband. So Edwards at 20, with no cap on what he could accomplish, found himself being drawn to this 13-year-old godly young woman, and Edwards recorded the following sentiment regarding Sarah. Listen to his words. He says, They say there is a young lady in New Haven who is beloved of that great being who made and rules the world, and that there are certain seasons in which this great being, in some way or other invisible, comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight, and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him. That she expects after a while to be received up where he is, to be raised up out of the world and caught up into heaven. Being assured that he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him always. 
There she is to dwell with him and to be ravished with his love and delight forever. Therefore, if you present all the world before her with the richest of treasures, she disregards it and cares not for it and is unmindful of any pain or affliction. She has a a strange sweetness in her mind and similar purity in her affections is most just and conscientious in her, in all her conduct. And you could not persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful. If you would give, if you would give her all the world, lest she should offend this great being. She is of a wonderful sweetness. God has manifested himself to her mind. She will sometimes go about from place to place singing sweetly and seems to be always full of joy and pleasure and no one knows for what. She loves to be alone walking in the fields and groves and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. This was Jonathan Edwards' impression of his 13-year-old future wife. Young women, if a young man were to observe you from a distance, what would he write? What this godly man's attention was caught by was a woman who desired God above else. She was committed to holiness to such a degree that you could not persuade her to do anything sinful, even if you gave to her All the world. Young men, what in a woman catches your eye? Is it a commitment to holiness? Is it zeal for God? Is it personal communion with Him? It must be these things. It must. Well, Jonathan and Sarah would marry in July of 1727 after a four-year courtship. During this time, Edwards wrestled intensely with his vocational calling. Should he pursue the world of academics or the pastorate? Well, after much soul-searching, Edwards gave himself to the high calling he had closely witnessed his father and grandfather pursue. This he would do with Sarah by his side, and that was a great benefit to the world that Edwards had a woman like Sarah by his side. Samuel Miller, a pastor shortly after the time of Edwards who wrote a biography on Edwards, states, Perhaps no event of Mr. Edwards' life had a more close connection with his subsequent comfort and usefulness than this marriage. What a sweet statement to say about a a man's wife. That's how it should be. That's how it should be. On February 15th of 1727, Edwards was ordained minister at Northampton and assistant to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. Solomon was a godly man and instilled many great virtues to Edwards. In fact, a famous quote of Stoddard reads this. He says, we are not sent into the pulpit to show our wit and eloquence, but to set the consciences of men on fire. What a great perspective as a pastor. Uh, That kind of statement evidences one who is committed to honoring God in their service to the body and trusting in the spirit of God to change hearts, to change lives, not your own persuasiveness or eloquence. He was looking for souls to be filled 
with the Spirit, not seats to be filled in the church. Well, in ministry, Edwards' normal practice was that he would spend 13 hours of study a day. He was not known for roaming around town or making frequent visits to members. He was committed to his study. However, he was still a faithful shepherd. It was a regular occurrence that he would have visitors come into his study. And he was warm and and he was welcoming to them. He believed that this arrangement was most beneficial. That he would spend many hours in his study and be available for those as they would come in. So... February of 1727, he began ministering, and it was July that year he married Sarah. Then 17, Sarah was from a storied New England clerical family. Her father was James, uh, the head founder of Yale College, and her mother was the great-granddaughter of Thomas Hooker. Hooker was a, a prominent Puritan colonial leader who founded the colonial Connecticut, colony of Connecticut, after dissenting with Puritan leaders in Massachusetts. And so he was known as an outstanding speaker and a strong leader. Sarah's spiritual devotion was without peer, and her relationship with God had long proved an inspiration to Edwards. She was of a bright and cheerful disposition, a practical housekeeper, a model wife, and the mother of his 11 children. Solomon Stoddard died On February 11th of 1729, leaving to his grandson the difficult task of the sole ministerial charge of one of the largest and wealthiest congregations in the colony. And one that was particularly proud of its morality, its culture, and its reputation. Listen, one major reason Edwards was able to do extraordinary things like rear 11 believing children is because he was married to an amazing woman. Edwards would at times skip dinner when he was entranced in God's word. He was committed to the Lord above all else and the word and a word for husbands this morning. We need to pace ourselves according to the kind of woman that we have. We need to know our wives Jonathan Edwards seemed to know his wife well, and she enabled him in ministry in extraordinary ways, but it seems that he did not run over his care of his wife to this ministry. And every husband is going to find himself in a, in a different spot, in a different circumstance, and he needs to have the wherewithal, the, the spiritual uh, sight to know his wife well and to pace himself according to his wife that he would serve her her well know her strengths know what blesses her know what serves her in your pursuit of the lord edwards would go on to pastor at northampton for the next 21 years before he was dismissed in 1750 these years were some of the best for edwards during this time there were trials and encouragements as come with ministry one of the great encouragements for edwards was his part of the great awakening During this time, Edward speaks of the amazing work of the Spirit of God, saving so many, at times 30 per month, were coming to faith in Christ. That would be amazing. We could have a grill out every month with baptism and all of that. We should long for that. This was a time in the 1730s and 40s where here in America, the Spirit of God worked on this land in just an extraordinary way. 
some refer to it as the Second Reformation. It's believed that one-tenth of the population was converted to faith in Jesus Christ in a two-year period of time. And Jonathan Edwards was a pastor who defined the hour and what God was doing in the life of the church. During this time, Edwards preached the famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is considered the greatest sermon ever to be preached in this country. And just think about that for a moment. There are some 100,000 sermons preached every Sunday. Every Sunday, 100,000 sermons in America. And over the last 400 years, only one sermon can truly be said to be famous that believer and non-believer are aware of. And it is Edward's sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Again, Edward's influence cannot be overstated. This was a a great time of excitement for Edwards, but it also caused him to continue to wrestle with one of the major issues that he struggled with his whole life. And that was the fruit that scripture clearly says accompanies salvation. Now he didn't struggle with that principle personally, but in his shepherding of his church, it was a struggle. That, that fruit undoubtedly accompanies the genuine believer of Christ. So he wrestled with this. He struggled with it his whole life. He knew that scripture clearly does say fruit accompanies salvation, that in order to be a part of the true church, you have to have faith in Christ. And that genuine faith in Christ produces fruit in your life. Edwards had a deep conviction that then participating in the Sunday service or merely a confession devoid of sincerity was not adequate for salvation. So in Edwards Church, he had the deep conviction, rightly so, that faith is required for salvation and fruit accompanies faith. And yet in his church, there was a common belief that simply participating in the Sunday service or having some sort of confession void of actual sincerity was adequate. And where this really kind of the rubber met the road, where things came to a head, was in regards to the Lord's table. And this would be eventually what brought about Jonathan Edwards' dismissal from his church. Edwards' father-in-law set a standard that all could partake in the Lord's table. And Edwards could no longer continue in this. He fully believed that genuine salvation had to be in effect for one to participate in that which was prescribed for believers. Edwards was not saying one had to be perfect or had to have the perfect Christian week in order to partake. However, if someone was attending the service and going through the Christian motions... Because it was socially acceptable and looked highly upon, that was not adequate. So simply confessing faith in Christ, going through the Christian motions, but not actually surrendering your life to Christ was not adequate. There must be life-transforming sin-repenting faith. Genuine faith and repentance of sin. 
And so the greatest pastor to ever pastor in America was put out of his own congregation. In fact, those in the congregation actually arranged a council meeting to discuss the issue and waited until Edwards was out of town, his absence, as he was on a trip. Then when Edwards returned, he was informed of the decision that he was to be let go. One eyewitness recorded this. After being dismissed from his church, Edwards received the shock unshaken. There was not the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week, but he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future but a present good overbalancing all imaginable ills of life, even to the astonishment of man who could not be at rest without his dismission. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. What a great example of faithful living of that principle, of that command from the Lord. And what a testimony, what a challenge for each of us to so be enthralled by the greatness of God that as Smith said this morning, that our first response would be one where not the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance, in our countenance, would be seen, but that we would be men and women whose happiness is out of the reach of our enemies. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever prayed for that? God, help my joy in you to be so rich that it is out of reach of my enemies. Well, after this, Edwards had a decision to make. He could have gone to other prominent places. In fact, he could have uh, essentially run Yale. And Jonathan Edwards made the difficult decision. He chose to no longer continue in a traditional pastorate. He was elderly in age comparatively. And to start again at a church seemed to him unwise. Rather, he spent the next seven years on the frontier as a missionary ministering to Native Americans on a fifth grade level. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought but associate with the lowly. The greatest thinker in the history of America communicating the gospel in a very elementary way, stepping out into oblivion, really because from his perspective, it would most glorify God. That was his commitment. Is there any areas of service that you've just set off limits? Uh, That... Somebody else can go do inner city evangelism. It's not really comfortable there. Is that how you think about those types of decisions? Or do you go, what, God, what would most glorify you? What would most glorify you? He ministered where he believed God desired him to. What will it cost you to most glorify God in your life? There will be a price tag. There is a price tag for those who are resolved to most live for the glory of God. Maybe you've already experienced this. Testing, persecution, hardship, difficulty, discouragements. You'll have to make choices 
to no longer go with the flow of this world, to go with what is easy, but rather to live no longer for the applause of this world, but to live for the applause of heaven, for the pleasure of God. That price tag will escalate very quickly every day of our life. And if you are to live most for the glory of God, it will cost you. The cost of discipleship of our Lord and Savior is steep. It will cost us popularity. It will cost us possessions. It will cost you positions. It will cost you much in this world. And it costs Jonathan Edwards drastically. Yet God used that commitment just as he will use the commitment in our lives if we will simply submit wholly to him and commit ourselves to live wholly for his glory. Jesus said in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Aaron Burr Sr., Edward's son-in-law, died in 1757. He had married Esther Edwards, one of Edward's daughters, five years before, and they had made Edwards the, um, Edwards the grandfather of Aaron Burr, later vice president of, of the United States. Edwards felt himself in the decline of life and inadequate to the office, but he was persuaded to replace Burr as president of the College of New Jersey, which would later become Princeton. He arrived in January and was installed on February 16, 1758. He gave weekly essay assignments in theology to the senior class. And all, all, almost immediately after becoming president, Edwards, a strong supporter of smallpox inoculations, decided to get inoculated himself in order to encourage others to do the same. Unfortunately, never having been in robust health himself, he died of the inoculation on March 22nd, 1758, and he's buried in Princeton Cemetery. A little bit about Edward's death, a little before his death, and speaking briefly to his younger daughter, he said this. He said, Dear Lucy, it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union, which has so long subsisted between us, has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual. And therefore will continue forever. And I hope she will be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. And as to my children, you are now likely to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you all to seek a father who will never fail you. As to my funeral, I would have it to be like Mr. Burr's and any additional sum of money that it might be expected to be paid out that way. I would have it deposed of to charitable uses. Shortly after leaving these messages for absent members of his family, he looked about and said, Now where is Jesus of Nazareth, my true and never failing friend? Then when those at his bedside believed he was unconscious and expressed grief at what his absence would mean, both to the college and to the church at large, they were surprised when he suddenly uttered a final sentence, trust in God and you need not fear. 
When the news reached Stockbridge, Sarah Edwards was suffering so much from rheumatism in her neck that she could scarcely hold a pen, but brief lines written to Esther on April 3rd epitomized the spirit in which she had sought to live with her husband for more than 30 years. She says, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness and that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. Ian Murray concluded his biography of Edwards with the following paragraph. He says, the ministry of Jonathan Edwards is very clearly not yet concluded. He's being read today as he has not been read for over a century and in more countries than ever before. Such a recovery of truth has commonly been a forerunner of revival. For this let all Christians pray and let it also be remembered that the word of God never yet prospered in the world without opposition. There is no guarantee that men faithful to God will be recognizable by their numbers, their talents, or their success. But in due course, if not in this lifetime, they will witness the fulfillment of the promise found in 1 Samuel 2.30. For them that honor me, I will honor. Edward sought closer fellowship with God himself. And every experience he had of God's nearness only encouraged him to seek him more. To know God, to serve him, to enjoy him was the theme and really the great end of his existence. We must study, but study for the sake of heartfelt worship and practical obedience. Steve Lawson, reflecting on the life of Jonathan Edwards, says this, Sanctification is never an elective course that a believer may or may not take. Neither is it an upper-level graduate study required only for a few disciples. Instead, it is a core class mandated for all Christians. Godliness is a lifelong study for no one graduates from the school of Christ this side of heaven. Many who confess Christ are pampering themselves to death rather than pushing themselves to holiness. Their spiritual muscles are untrained and unfit. Their wills are soft and unresolved. How are your spiritual muscles? How are your spiritual muscles? Jonathan Edwards prized personal purity above all else. He sought to glorify God in all else and not to gain God's favor. He did this because he so treasured the splendor of God's holiness. He did this in response to God's greatness and who he was. And I want to encourage you, whatever giftedness, whatever talents the Lord has given you, use it, offer it back to God for the purpose of his glory that our life would be used, the, the summary of our life would be used for the glory of God. This was Edward's resolve as an 18-year-old man and new Christian. He began writing his resolutions. He would go on to read his resolutions once a week for the rest of his life. In his intro to his resolutions, which were defining to his life and instrumental in his years of faithful devotion to Christ, he says this, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Remember to read these resolutions once a week. I want to jump down a little bit as we wrap up. I just want to read. If you haven't ever read through Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, I encourage you to do so. 
Uh, just going to read the first one for you. It's really a summary of all the resolutions that would follow. He says, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to most to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. Edwards committed his life to what was most glorifying to God. There was never a disposition of why can't I do these things that I really want to do? His pursuit was what would most glorify God. As we close a couple quotes of Edwards in respect to his pursuit of personal holiness, he says, holiness, as I then wrote down some contemplations on it, appeared to me to be of a sweet, pleasant, charming, serene, calm nature, which brought an inexpressible purity, brightness, peacefulness, and ravishment to the soul. Do you think about obedience to Christ that way? In other words, that it it made the soul like a field or garden of God with all manner of pleasant flowers, all pleasant, delightful, and undisturbed, enjoying a sweet calm and the gently vivifying beams of the sun, the soul of a true Christian, as I then wrote my meditations, appeared like such a little white flower as we see in the spring of the year, low and humble on the ground, opening its blossom to receive the pleasant beams of the sun's. Glory rejoicing as it were in a calm rapture, diffusing around a sweet fragrance, standing peacefully and lovely in the midst of other flowers round about, all in like manner, opening their blossoms to drink in the light of the sun. There was no part of creature holiness that I had so great a sense of its loveliness as humility, brokenness of heart, and poverty of spirit. And there was nothing that I so earnestly longed for. My heart panted after this to lie low before God as in the dust that I might be nothing and God might be all. That I might become as a little child. And then lastly, he says, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied to go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives or children or the company of earthly friends are but shadows of God. But God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. But God is the sun. These are but streams. But God is the ocean. Let us all resolve for holiness of life as this man did. Let us all pursue the glory of God as our ultimate end. Let us all find satisfaction in God as this man did. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the life of Jonathan Edwards and the ongoing effect of his life on so many. Lord, I pray that what we have seen This morning, we would recognize the good as the grace of God. And Lord, that we would learn what we should, that we would be corrected where we need to, that we would be encouraged where we need to, that we would be strengthened where we need to, all for the glory of your name. Make us holy people before you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. A couple resources. If you want to look more into the life of Jonathan Edwards, I have them here.
there are many, but um, four that are really help, helpful is a biography by George Marsden on Jonathan Edwards. This one is great. This is probably one of the more approachable books and really helpful by Jonathan Edwards. It uh, just points out some great things about his life and then implications of how we should think about his life um, and the bearing on our own lives. John Piper has this book, God's Passion for His Glory, that outlines a lot of Jonathan Edwards' life and um, different implications. And then one of the best as far as just getting information about Jonathan Edwards' life in a, in a devotional, helpful way with lots of details is Ian Murray's biography on Jonathan Edwards. You're welcome to come take a look at any of these if you'd like. Thank you so much for sticking around. Have a great rest of your Sunday. You are dismissed.